Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. This is the Soho Radio Podcast, showcasing some of the best broadcasts from our online radio station, right from the heart of Soho, London. Across our music and culture channels, we have a wide range of shows covering every genre, along with chat shows, discussions and special broadcasts. Here is just one of our recent shows. To catch the full show, head to our Mixcloud page or listen live at SohoRadioLondon.com. Welcome to Tears for Frears, the show where we talk about the art, music and moments that make us cry. Um, That was Scissor uh, with Drew Barrymore, um, a song I love. Um, Also shout out to Tom Herbert, who did the jingle, which we love. Um, uh, In the studio with me today, I have multidisciplinary artist Louise Gray. Hi, Louise. Hello. (laughs) Novelist Tom Crew. Hi. Hello. Poet, Boyega Odobanjo, hello. Bonjour. <laughs> Bonjour. Um, Boyega, what have you been up to today? Um, I am reading submissions of poetry pamphlets at the moment. And I was playing a bit of chess on my phone. <laughs> and now I'm here. Are you winning the chess? I win some and I lose some. It's, it's life. <laughs> Um, is chess big, big for you? Yeah, um, I don't know too many people in real life with whom I play chess, but there's a lot of strangers on the internet. Oh, so that you're not playing a com- you're you're playing people. Yeah. Um, who's your nemesis? Have you got a nemesis? Um, <laughs> there aren't many people who I'd face more than once. Um, yeah. <laughs> One night chessing. It's just an app where you say you want to play a game of chess for 10 minutes and then you play a game of chess with someone else in the world for 10 minutes. Sometimes they try and speak to me via the chat function, but I don't like speaking to them. Oh my God. <laughs> Would you ever, have you ever broken that rule? You ever? I think when I first started, I would speak a little bit, but I found it too weird. <laughs> That's so great. Do either of you play chess? No, I could never. I could never. I could ment- <laughs> mentally, chess is beyond me. Yeah. <laughs> How about you, Louise? I wish I did. I love looking at chess boards, but no, it's not something I've ever tried. I feel like um, the chess board has been quite a thing in fashion, no? In fashion history, no? Definitely the idea of it, I guess. The mm. king and queen and, I don't know, the checkerboard. yeah. I don't know if I can say more than that, but yeah, no. there is something. I know that it seems like a very serious thing, but it does look quite camp, doesn't it? Definitely. I think so, yeah. I think it's very camp. 
Um, and just to go back to the submissions that you're reading, who are you reading those for? Little Betty's, which is the new pamphlet imprint of Bad Betty Press. Mm, cool. And when you're editing, what, what are you looking out for? What's the sort of, where's the emotion for you? I think um, it's more of a negative definition. I'm looking to not be bored, if that makes sense. And I would say that from the feeling of not being bored comes the emotion of being surprised. <laughs> and that's what I like. Nice, nice. Tom, you edit um, for the LRB. Don't you? What do you when do you get submissions through? Do you commission work? How does it work? We we mainly commission. We we have about ninety eight ninety eight percent probably is commissioned, and then there's the two percent that that slips through. Um, slips through is probably again a negative <laughs> way of putting it. Um, so we we do we do look out for that surprising the surprising pitch, the thing mm. that that uh, suggests something we we wouldn't have thought of or or presents uh, a writer we haven't come across yet but of course you get used to all the uh, distressing ways in which people do pitch <laughs> most, most of the time the problem is people don't do themselves favors they write far too much or it's far too elaborate or it's or they write very badly in their pitch which is normally not a good sign um, so in the main we, we try and make our own choices mm. um, but you know anyone out there listening don't let that put you off <laughs> there's always the two percent um, and are you, is there emotion that you're looking for? Are you looking for that sort of that kind of hook, or is it more sort of cerebral? I wish the LRV was more emotional than it is. I think we we tend to, in our editing, we actually tend to squeeze out or erase <laughs> tra traces of personality. <laughs> if a piece has too much personality in it, we normally uh, try and strip it back to LRV style. Which I don't think is always the right thing to do, and sometimes there are some writers like Patricia Lockwood, who writes for the LRB, who is such an enormous personality <laughs> that it is impossible to restrain her. And if you did limit her personality, her pieces would not be her pieces. So you you're always trying to see, you know, what a writer's strengths are. And mm. if a writer's strengths are personality, then that's great. But often they're not, and often personality <laughs> attempts at humour or quirkiness actually just falls flat, flat on the page cut so, it yeah <laughs> squeeze cut, it out cut. yeah um louise you've just launched a record label yeah in a diy sense i definitely have <laughs> <laughs> what does that mean <laughs> it means i don't know very much about how it works other than watching lots of men on youtube tell me how to start a record label there's a lot of those which mm. I've watched, and I was like, this isn't difficult. <laughs> what, do the, what do the men say? Um, they just give you sort of like a painfully descriptive way of how to do it and how not to bugger it up, basically, as well. There's a lot of advice. So, you know, there's some things I'll write down and just a lot that I avoid listening to. <laughs> and are, are these very successful record label executives no. doing the YouTube videos? No, <laughs> no, they just seem to be very good at making YouTube videos. <laughs> <laughs> and you've started it with someone else, haven't you? Yeah, so it's called uh, Adrenaline Darling Records, and I think that's because adrenaline is the sort of goal that we're looking for in it. And um, I just did a show in February, and I made music for it so the performers could perform in the space. And actually just making music from the words... I, I don't sing in them, I just talk my words. It was actually... It just felt so great and people were like oh you should release them and I was like I will <laughs> so 
I guess it felt good to do that. And then, yeah, um, now we've made lists of other people that we want to try and do that for. And because I come from, like, a design world as well, I've already designed some merch and, like printed it in my house i feel like a very diy queen mm. and yeah. you just uh because you won't be able to say it, the uh louise just did the screen printing action yeah so all of it feeling quite good about returning back to art school roots and like i don't know just doing it in your own way with the people that you want to do it with so yeah baby daddy is the other person that i'm i'm doing it with that is a new um, their their new song we're going to release first, so I'm excited. Oh. And they're a musician, they're an artist, what do they do? Both. Um, they produced the music that I made and this song that's going to come out, which is called Hot Trans Boys, with another performer called Wet Mess. <laughs> um, and yeah, that comes out, I think, next week. Great. It's exciting. So we're just it's limbering exciting. up. So this show will go out in July, July 24th, and so um, you will already be able to listen to that. That's um, exciting. <laughs> um, and speaking of music, I think we should have our first song. Um, Boyega, this is uh, your Le Beirut one. Can you say some words? <laughs> so, I hadn't heard of Feiru, who was the artist, up until relatively recently. I think maybe on someone's Instagram story, this song was playing and... I found it beautiful. It was a part of an album that I would listen to and I loved it because it's ostensibly about home and me as someone who enjoys making art and consuming art, that's about my home, London. I love to hear how others refer to their own homes and then I learnt later that Feiru is actually very, very famous. And my, she's from Lebanon. My Egyptian friend referred to her as the Michael Jackson of the Arab world. Oh, God, I hope in, the mu- in a music sense. <laughs> Not at all. Oh, mm, I think in a, <laughs> in a celebrity sense. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Good, <laughs> just to clear that up. Um, and this, this is a song that makes you cry? If it's not, you've misunderstood the whole point of the show. There aren't many things that make me cry. I'll say that this is a song that gets me closest to crying as most things do. Wow. Here's an achievement. Thank you, Boyega. وقبل للبحر والبيوت لصخرة كأنها Welcome back to Tears for Frizz. Um, I'm here with Louise, Tom and Boyega. Um, so we've already established, Boyega, that you don't cry a lot. Tom, are you much of a crier? Yes, <laughs> but never in a very respectable way. Just never... Never with a good cause. Thankfully, never have a really good cause to cry. But I, I well up at almost anything vaguely emotional. Um, just anything, anything, <laughs> anything at all. You know, Gogglebox. Most most episodes no. of Gogglebox. Yeah. 
I've never watched Gogglebox. It's the best show on TV. I really believe that. So, can you tell me why? Sell it to me. <laughs> <laughs> it just makes me laugh. It just makes me laugh more than anything else on TV. There's something so magical about these people just sat on the sofa having a laugh. It's just that kind of humour that's my favourite kind of humour, which is the f- humour with your friends and family when you just play off each other, wordplay, puns, slagging people <laughs> off. Uh, maybe slagging people off is my favourite kind of humour. And it just really brings out... <laughs> the best in Britain, I think, at <laughs> this show. Uh, so, I, and you feel, you know, these people have been on it for years and years, and so you feel like Jenny and Lee in Hull are my two favourite people in the world. They could do anything and I will laugh. Like Jenny and Lee, they're great. Yeah. Wow. I, maybe, I'll, maybe I'll try it. Do either of you watch Gogglebox? No. I can, <laughs> I can see there was some nodding on my right. Yeah, yeah I'm just listening and totally agreeing <laughs> with no. all of it. Um, it's, it's the same thing. It's like you're, you can be sat at home and then watch other people be at home and be with their family or friends and that sort of thing that you do where you can throw something at somebody or just, yeah. It's, it's funny humour, yeah. I agree. And what was, what was moving about it? It's often moving when it's an, there's an emotional story in the news and, of course, it's kind of contemporaneous with your moment, so you watch the weeks TV mm. with them. And if there's an emotional story, it's very moving to watch people responding to it in real time and if you're the sort of person who I'm this sort of person if you see someone crying you start crying seeing these people on TV crying always sets me off mm. but in Covid I thought it was especially moving because it was this sense of communion and community that had been lost during the pandemic and I think it really helped me get through the whole thing like every week just seeing people still going on still having fun still talking it sort of let you into these other people's houses and that was the closest you were going to get during lockdown so I did think that was quite special Right. And Louise, are you much of a crier? Do you cry? Um, I do cry. I don't love crying. No. Like, I don't <laughs> love people seeing me cry. Um, so like you, I well up at tons of stuff. But I like want to normalise crying for myself. I'm like, Louise, just cry. It's totally fine. Like, it's just yeah. your body wants to process some emotions. Just let it, for God's sake. <laughs> like, there's so many in there. That's what I feel like sometimes. But yeah, I guess... Um, it's hard sometimes in situations because you don't know if some other people are going to think that, I don't know, there's still like a, a weird thing around it that maybe it's bad if you're crying. Oh. And I think we just need to stop that. Really, That's what I'm saying about normalising. I'm trying to get myself to be like, just just act the crying, it's fine. <laughs> cry if you want to cry. Mm. Um, you might have this as well. I, 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 a lot of my students, not um, by, it's not my fault, but they cry often in, in classes. Poetry workshops are very exposing often, and um, you try and make a safe space. Boyeg is nodding. I'm sure that um, you've had people crying in your workshops, yeah. um, and it's a very beautiful thing. Um, mm. But I think possibly because I'm around crying so much, I and I need to be neutral for that. If I was crying too, it would become too much. It's not about me. Yeah. Um, that I have that also. I that I find it weird to cry in public. Yeah. I guess I I definitely teach and I think it's the same thing when somebody's making work that means an enormous amount to them or they don't actually realise how much they've revealed about themselves sometimes until it's until it's done and that can feel awful if you then have to critique it in some way mm-hmm. and that can make I don't know the discussion or the discourse just a lot more difficult because I don't know in fashion where I teach it's always about trying to get the idea to feel the clearest or the mm. are you actually saying it well enough it, in this art form, I suppose. And you teach on the on a course at St. Ma- St. Martin's. Yeah. yeah, I teach on Emmy Fashion at St. Martin's, and um, 
I guess I think about fashion as, a, as an art. It's just a communication. So, like, what are you communicating? What you're saying? Well, is that happening, or is it not? And it can it can make for really hard discussions with students that are they're they're not trying to do it in a in a small way. They're trying to do it in the best way, and they're trying to achieve. And there's a lot of pressure, and there's I guess competition that they create amongst themselves as a cohort often. But yeah, I suppose I have seen that soften over the last three years. Mm. Um, would you mind uh, introducing your song? It's the um, John Says one. Um, so this is Leslie Weiner, who I think is a sort of visionary um, artist. Um, I read that somebody coined the term grandmother of trip hop for her, which I think is really cool. Um, but she's just someone that seems to say things that no one else is saying. So I just love um, all of her music, actually. But this one I, I chose because it's actually about the sea. Welcome back. Um while uh, just before that song, we were talking. Um, Louise was talking about communication um, and students um, trying to communicate through their work. Um, Tom, I was wondering if you feel with your novel, um, you have a new novel out, your first novel. Um, what's it called? Can you give us a little? <laughs> it's called The New Life, and it's about two men in the 1890s who try to write a book arguing for the legalization of homosexuality. Um, sort of just before the Oscar Wilde trial, which gets in the way of things. <laughs> um, and do you feel like you were trying to communicate through? Is that is that what you're doing? Is that what a novel is doing? Communicating. I think it fe- that's what a novel feels like to me. You have an you have an idea, and then it's the great struggle to <laughs> articulate the idea. Maybe that's what a poem feels like, um, or a piece of art. You know, it's something there. And then it's the great effort to express it. But it also feels, the compulsion aspect feels like I need to get this, I need to get this out of me and I need to build it up. And a novel is so, ends up being so big, it becomes a whole world. And it can be hundreds of thousands of words. So you're starting from just this tiny inkling Mm. and you've got to try and, I mean, some, you know, novelists sometimes say it's like you're, digging for something that you know is there but you've got to keep digging and digging till you find it and there is something something like that going on you don't know really what it is you're just working around it you're trying to size it up mm. and but you yeah and, and I, in the story I, I wanted to communicate I wanted to show people um, or dramatise this historical moment and say look Look, look at these men, look at these women, look at these people in the 1890s who were trying to create a world like the one we live in and how hard that was. And why do we only remember, we only remember Oscar Wilde and his Mm -hmm. tragedy, this fall. We don't remember that the 1890s was an incredibly optimistic time before that happened. People were thinking, "This, we can change the law, we can do it. Um, But because of Wilde, we don't. And then we celebrate him and not the other people. So I, mm. I, I had a, all these years ago, I had a sense of frustration and again, a desire to communicate, a desire to say, look, look at this, have a look. 
Um, one of the things I found really interesting is um, because it's told uh, it's it's two you have two protagonists um, and uh, the anger at Oscar Wilde um, for getting in the way, but also for denying um, his homosexuality. Um, I think that that's not something that's that I've seen sort of explored in such depth. Yeah, I mean that was one of the things I did want to show. You know, you know, what if you push Oscar Wilde out of the centre of the story, but also what if you, by doing so, you actually say, look, this guy's in a way the villain of this story. Of course he wasn't. He was, you know, a man who was terribly um, hard done by. But my my men think, yes, he's got in the way and he's been an idiot. And he was an idiot. I mean, he got himself <laughs> into this trial. He didn't need to. It was, it was uh, his own silly decision and he and then he got up in court and said i'm not gay oh my you know absolutely not these people these men who say i am are lying these men who say we had sex they're liars and that's what has always felt quite strange to me that this is the man we celebrate because it's an unusual choice for a for a gay martyr for a kind of idol of gay rights whereas john addington simmons who is the basis for my character john was this incredibly articulate figure who really was a sort of proto-gay rights activist in the 1890s mm. and really wanted to change the law and do something about it, writing books, um, wrestling with it, writing about it, wrote an autobiography. Wilde didn't do any of these things. We can, we can <laughs> see he's making veiled references in his stories, in his plays, but he's not, uh, for me, a very good poster boy for gay rights. Yeah. Mm. There's a bit of a pattern emerging where your favourite TV show is watching other people watch TV and then you're writing a novel, which, correct me if I'm wrong, is about other people writing a book. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's true. I'm just incredibly meta, what can I say? <laughs> <laughs> but, hey, am I right in I'm thinking you did a philosophy degree? I did. Um, <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> is it rearing its head? <laughs> uh, it's like slipping inside and out and, yeah, all of that. Um, for you, communication, is, is poetry a form of communication? Yes, but I'm not sure how much that communication is... I'm not sure how much I'm trying to communicate with others. I think that a lot of it is communicating with myself and the nature of poetry, the, the, the nature of releasing work means that others will see it and they will have their responses. But I think primarily it is me trying to figure things out. Mm, nice. And you have two, three pamphlets out? Like two and a half pamphlets. Two point five. Yeah. Um, because uh, there are the two main pamphlets, and then there's the one that you did for Barking and Dagenham, right? Yeah. And so that one is six poems plus three interviews with artists from East London. How was that process talking to? Because um, there are like sort of you, you work with real people in that, don't you? Yeah. Um, it was great. Um, in the first instance to explore the archives of Barkin and Dagenham and to almost communicate with people who lived in a very different Barkin and Dagenham to the one I grew up in and then the second half of that project to interview artists and to present it in the pamphlet as them just talking by themselves as opposed to 
me placing myself in the interview. So it was, yeah, for me, different ways of communicating and ways of communicating that I found most interesting for that. Mm. So we're going to have uh, Tom's next song, The Silver Linings. Oh, Silver Linings. This is uh, a song called Silver Linings by Rilo Kylie. And I'm doing a bit of a Desert Island Discs here. These songs are emotional because they're associated with moments in my life. Um, this is uh, a song, I, an album I was obsessed with when I first went to university, aged 18, and I was a real uh, homebody and uh, loved my family, and it was a big step for me. You know, previously I'd only been away five days in Centre Parks, so going to work, going to university was a big deal. And this song was the first song on, on this album, and I, I used to listen to it over and over and over again in my first term, so it makes me think of that. Please. back um so louise uh, to go back to what tom was saying about oscar Wilde not maybe being the ideal poster boy for <laughs> queer history do you have a poster boy girl them <laughs> for queer history for queer history gosh um so many i feel like i've been reading a lot about the history of women i suppose more than gay mm -hmm. necessarily because i'm so interested in that period in paris Actually, um, Oscar Wilde's niece looked exactly like Oscar Wilde and she had to move to <laughs> Paris. She had to go somewhere else. <laughs> <laughs> At the time when there was a lot of lesbian writers and there were ones who were much more, I guess, um, wealthy that supported all the other ones. But Oscar Wilde's niece, she did a drag show where she dragged as Oscar Wilde because she looked exactly like him. <laughs> what was her name? I did not, I did Dorothy, not know that. Dorothy Wilde. Dorothy Wilde, I love it. <laughs> <laughs> and you use text a lot in your work. You're famous for using text. Yeah, which is funny because I just wouldn't, until recently, say that I was a writer, but it is something that I do all the time. <laughs> in the same way that you're saying, uh, where I feel it's... I'm trying to find out what I'm feeling at a certain time. I'm trying to observe also, I don't know, who am I today? What's coming out? And sometimes it's horrifying, of course. And sometimes it's like, oh, I don't know who that is, but it's interesting and it's out there. And I, I guess my job is just to, to get it out there. Mm. That's all I think about that. And I, I sometimes you, it seems like you're playing with um, the idea of a slogan or of a, an affirmation. Um, yeah. Is that sort of a conscious? Uh, I like the idea that it might sound like something you would hear in a meditation or mm. it's it, an affirmation or like, you know, empowerment. They're all words that are used, I guess, to try and make us feel good. I'm not ever trying to do that, but I do think it's interesting to play into that for sure. It's like, because people then decide themselves how it feels to them or what it means to them. But I'm not writing it with that in mind, ever. But, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and um, I was reading that you had... So you were very successful early on with, with your fashion brand, mm. um, and then you had a little break from it. Mm. Um, and you then you had another show, right? Yeah, so uh, I went to St Martin's, I did an Emmy, and then I did shows at London Fashion Week. And I guess, like, even describing it to my students, like, I was very quiet and very shy but like fashion is just a, a way of communicating it's like a way of being able to say the things that you want to say without talking that was really interesting to me <laughs> that all of these other things could do it for you 
Um, so I guess the more that I got in touch with the writing, the more that I could hear myself more, not just through like colour or print or pattern or like the idea of creating a world. It was it was really getting in touch with how I really did feel. And was it? Did you have the words then? Was it? That you could... Yeah, even on all the linings and stuff that I printed inside the clothes were all words, and mm. I would I would write a lot. Because the your the style of your handwriting, which is amazing and, and sort of graphic, <laughs> and um, but it really sort of takes up space. It feels loud. Mm. Yeah, I definitely want to feel like that. I feel like on the internet, I probably look a lot more confident than I am in real life. <laughs> Isn't <that> everyone? <laughs> but that's great. That's the best thing about the internet. You can look like you're a really big, loud, amazing person, and then in real life, you're like, hi. <laughs> <laughs> Um, Boyega, Tom, do you how do you how do you feel about fashion and clothes and um, and your aesthetic? Do you do you put much thought into it? Are you? I'm looking at you and what you're wearing today, <laughs> which is basically the same thing. You basically yeah, come matching. We did actually. Come, I thought that. Um, I knowing that there was going to be a fashion person here today, I did feel very self-conscious. But then you were, but essentially put on a very boring outfit. And now I've taken off the jacket, which was the only thing really pulling the outfit together. Because it's too hot. <laughs> it's and, really hot. Uh, yeah. Um, I, I have an interesting thing. For me, fashion, as much as I could use that word in relation to myself, had a very personal meaning at one point, which was about communication, which was I, when I came out at, at 21, I, I'd never cared about clothes. I'd never given a toss about what, what I looked. And I looked terrible all the time. And what was very strange for me was the minute I came out and I suddenly sort of embraced having a sexual identity and fancying people and wanting people to fancy me back, I just affected this complete personal transformation and suddenly <laughs> started caring about clothes and started buying clothes and dressing as nicely as I knew how. And so I, I always think that was a very significant moment for me. And and some people said, thought I was kind of camping up now I was now I was out I was sort of you know but I wasn't really I was just trying to But look, who cares if nice. you were Well I mean... exactly I know maybe yeah maybe they were homophobic um, <laughs> but I yeah so I for me clothes caring about clothes always dates from that point and was... I still try and I still try and look nice I <laughs> You do look nice you look lovely <laughs> Um what was there a particular item of clothing that you thought yes this is it this is the new me well, I I was actually talking about this recently. There was there was a moment where I bought a a pink jacket, which just by its sheer boldness became the ultimate symbol of of my <laughs> emancipation. Because I would never have dared. I didn't. The fact that it was pink was irrelevant. But I would never have dared buy something so obvious um, and bold before that. Before what that what kind of pink are we talking? A kind of a quite strong salmon, you know, sort of out the oven, ten mins, <laughs> that kind of that kind of salmon. Wow. Um, I should say the person I really fancied I was doing this all for never happened. Oh. Yeah. yeah. Um, but you're with someone lovely now. Yes. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> and he's might. never seen the pink jacket. Oh, what a shame! Maybe maybe tonight's the night. <laughs> <laughs> you're assuming I've still got it. Do and you you're, not? You're correct. <laughs> It's an important jacket. Um, Boyega, I've seen you take some some sartorial risks before. Yeah, um, I think, yeah, fashion for me is quite important. Since I was around 15 or 16, at which point I kind of threw away all my clothes and decided that I would only wear suits from then on. And a lot of that was like herringbone, waistcoats, etc. But then when I got to uni... 
I didn't want to be known as the waistcoat guy. And also I wanted to wear clothes that were more comfortable. And so my style changed a little bit, but throughout all of it, I've always liked cutting my own clothes. And those cuts aren't necessarily always straight, nor are they necessarily always to the right length because I do very little measuring. So I think that the choice that you're referring to is <laughs> one of my blazers that I cut. Um, and I think I'm happy with that choice. I thought it, it looked It was a bit good. shorter than I wanted to have cut it. was it, a crop. But yeah, yeah. But there's <laughs> nothing wrong with a crop. Yeah, indeed. Um, I, the only reason I'm bringing it up is because you, on stage, announced that you were anxious about the length <laughs> yeah. of your jacket. Were you wearing anything under the jacket? I was wearing something under the jacket, but it was so short that it meant that, like, if I were to, like, raise my arms... It would come it, off over your head. Yeah, almost, <laughs> almost. <laughs> But I think that it was ultimately a success. <laughs> um, so uh, as part of this show, as well as having the, the tracks that move my guests, um, I like to intersperse tracks that bring me immense joy um, to sort of uh, add some balance, I guess. Um, and this next one, when I was 19, I had a best friend who was also called Ella and we would DJ uh, in the town in Falmouth um, together. We'd buy soul vinyl. Um, Stacks Motown, so, and um, we had a night called Ella and Ella Presents, and had loads of fun, and would always end our sets with this song. So at that point, when everyone's sort of sweaty and euphoric, maybe the lights have come on and nobody cares, we would play this song. Um, and though you know, uh, we've drifted apart, me and this friend, as, as friends sometimes do. Ella, where are you? Come back. <laughs> <laughs> and this is my no. <laughs> <laughs> I, uh, I, it still, it still brings me joy. I think sometimes uh, those friendship romances are the sweetest. Mm. Um, and uh, so this is, this is for you, Ella. So just to go back to um, dressing very briefly, um, because I'd like to hear more thoughts from you, Louise, yeah, as it is your um, area. Um, you, you dress people for events occasionally, don't you? Sometimes people do ask me to, yeah. How's that as a, as a <laughs> process? It makes it so much more real when it's a real person doing it. You know, when I got into fashion, it was really... It was much more like I, I was very aware that I didn't like the world that I was looking at. So the idea of creating one that could provide something different was really interesting so you you could reject a lot of stuff but then when real people really like your things and really want to wear them I was always like oh my god <laughs> it's a, that was a different level so mm. I'm always elated when people want to wear it and it actually makes them feel good and look good or yeah so you've dressed Taishani I know for the Turner Prize right no, no. Um, I wish I did I thought I... that was me I did um, it I don't know where I've I that. adore Tai and her work. who did you you who have you dressed then? Um, I'm trying to think, oh, I sorry. guess. Uh, my research has gone awry. Nana Cherry wore one of my jumpers <gasps> once and I just, you know, that felt like incredibly That's amazing. Um, yeah, it was a collaboration jumper that I did and it had some of my writing on it. And you're just like, you're a mega star of all proportions. Great. Thank you. <laughs> you know, it just feels like that. You're just like, wow. 
yeah, yeah. massively a megastar. Like, yeah. yeah, incredible. And uh, Boy George, I made stuff <gasps> for last year. Oh, wow. <laughs> you were holding that back. <laughs> um, which was really fun because you can... He actually sent me the hat and I had to make lots of decoration, different versions of that. Does he just have the one hat? <laughs> is, this, is this a trade the secret? Hat. Boy George only has one hat. No, I don't think so. I think it was the one he was specifically going on tour with. But that felt really good because always, I've always been a Boy George fan. So suddenly you're like, wow. Do you Incredible. have a dream person that you'd like to dress? Um, I feel like, I've, I, feel like I've, you know, I don't think about it in that way. It's just incredible when it does happen, I suppose. You're just like, oh, it feels like life is interesting. But yeah, mm. I don't have a big list of people. I've, I've enjoyed the people that have worn it. Mm. You just feel like, ooh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, so, Boyega, we're going to go to your selected text. Cool. Um, if you could maybe introduce it and then, and then read it. Yeah. The poem I'm going to read is To the Harbour Master by Frank O'Hara. Frank O'Hara's one-off, if not my favourite, poet. And I personally don't write many love poems, but I love love poems and I love rom-coms. And so this poem in particular, with its just like variety of water-based images remind me of my favourite aspects of love poems and rom-coms where people are looking over bodies of water. To the Harbour Master by Frank O'Hara. I wanted to be sure to reach you, though my ship was on the way it got coursed in some moorings. I'm always trying and then deciding to depart in storms and at sunset with the metallic coils of the tide around my fathomless arms i am unable to understand the forms of my vanity or i am hard leave with my polish rudder in my hand and the sun sinking to you i offer my hull and the tattered cordage of my will the terrible channels where the wind drives me against the brown lips of the reeds are not all behind me yet i trust the sanity of my vessel and if it sinks it may well be an answer to the reasoning of the eternal voices the waves which have kept me from reaching you So beautiful. If we're talking about post queer poster boys, Frank O'Hara out there for me. Yeah, wow. <laughs> um, what is it? Uh, uh, the form is really beautiful of this poem as well. Um, do you think about form when you're writing? I know you do. But. Very much so. Yeah. Um, and I'll say that this poem, what most interests me in the form is the fact that it's a series of statements. Um, it the movement of it fits very well with its subject matter and the fact that you've got all of this quite explicitly romantic language and then like slap back in the middle of it it's the speaker referring to his Polish rudder which mm. isn't how I've heard <laughs> people what, refer to that's themselves what I call, it's what I call mine <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> um yeah, so that the uh, that juxtaposition between the flower and the rudder. Mm, beautiful. Mm. And could you introduce your next song for us? 
The next song is Bad Influence by a Nigerian artist named Omar Lee. And it's essentially just about a woman ruining his life to the point where he's addicted to everything. little clearing of the throat from Tom there. <laughs> what are you going to say, Tom? <laughs> Nothing. <laughs> I'm sorry. Um, I want to talk about um, like big art film moments that have made us cry um, in our lives. Louise, do you have any like sort of um, any films that always make you cry or, or a film that you saw young that sort of had you in tears? Um, or a piece of art? I guess... Um, the first piece of art I remember crying at is seeing Tracy Emmons' quilts in the Hayward and they were all up in these walls and it just felt very like here's everything that she has to say <laughs> and it was uh, it was a lot but it was amazing and I just couldn't believe that somebody was able to communicate in that way um, but also it felt tied to like women's work so like through textiles and like this place that we're put into I don't know I remember just standing there in floods of tears in the in the gallery, yeah. Wow, <laughs> and being like, "This has not happened before." <laughs> yeah, this type of escorted out. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, but what an amazing reaction to! I think that's quite unusual for people to. Yeah. Um, yeah, I worked with some gallery assistants who did a project, and they didn't talk a lot about people crying in the space. Lots oh, of other okay. things, shitting in the space. But wow. Wow. <laughs> and presume you weren't doing that. No, I definitely wasn't. <laughs> it was just awestruck, but. I guess that's also what I teach students, that like making people feel something should be the goal in a way, especially if it's a bigger body of work. Like, What is it that you're really trying to say and are you putting those emotions into it? And that is really hard to do. Yeah. <laughs> but I guess talking about it helps them take it on board. That um, Tracy Human was, was really big for me um, as a sort of young young person. And I mean, it was the bed because that was the sort of thing that everyone was talking about, I guess. Yeah. Um, but I feel like it's not or I don't hear it spoken enough about now I think there was a sort of slight uh, she became slightly unpopular due to her politics um, but uh, um, yeah that that she she was really at the sort of forefront of, of female honesty of female ugliness in, in inverted commas yeah um, absolutely and I think uh, being able to say that these are all the people that I've slept with these are the abortions that I've had these are the emotions that I have around it and then I guess what we do with women like that that are being truth-tellers is that we have to try and put them in a box. So, you know, she gets slated for it. She, Even though she can't cope with it probably herself and she's drunk because of the pressure or, like, I don't know, we just... It's very easy for us to put women down as those feelings are not important. But I think actually now, now her work resonates even more because you, you understand that those feelings are completely... They resonate with most women or the types of women that we have now mm. and become even more important with yeah. you know abortion rights being under threat or, or having been lost in many cases yeah um it's it's vital vital work absolutely tom how about you big big art big film moments well i i actually recently had my first uh, crying in a gallery experience when i went to see a pissarro exhibition in oxford and pissarro is one of my favorite artists 
but but still I wasn't prepared. I, it was something to do with his... Uh, he was in his point, pointillist phrase, uh, phase and... Uh, <laughs> more easy for me to say. <laughs> and he, uh, you know, doing these little... Building these pictures... I mean, his pictures are always incredibly expressive and built out of layers and layers of paint, but... He's doing these little dots and dots, and it's just a—it was just a scene of a of a garden in France in 1893, and uh, just the the attention to build up this absolutely beautiful radiant image to record that day with all these tiny dots. There was just something so moving, and I think it's maybe often the case. It's as with Tracy Emin, you know, it's, it's labour, it's people's work, and the effort that has gone into the creation of something to mm. give that to give that pleasure and beauty can sometimes just feel overwhelming so that, that and then there i was shedding a tear um is that a similar date to the date of your where you're when your book set yes i mean my, yeah yeah in 1890s. It, yeah it would have been the 1890s i think is there something about that time period that really <laughs> just gets me guessing me <laughs> were you born no. in the wrong era is that what I, you're well, I no i don't think i really would have loved to live in the 1890s but i but i definitely i just find the past the fact of the past very moving i've i'm constantly just very um just very moved by by the fact that it was here and now it is not that day was there and then it went and these people lived and then they didn't and that we are always inhabiting the same spaces but that whole world and life has irreversibly gone and there's something you know it's like someone being on the other side of a curtain you know and you just can't get to them it's so close and yet it's uh, an impossible distance to cross and I I find that an everyday sort of miracle is probably the wrong word but an everyday marvel that we we live in we live in the past every single day of our lives, and yet we're not in the past. I think I think that's beautiful. It is beautiful, <laughs> <laughs> and maybe that's what my novel and what my kind of writing's about when it is concerned with the past is trying to. That's the closest I can get. That's really interesting because I think that Boyega, you might not agree, but poetry does other things with time. Like there's the, there are multiple time sort of frames or, or timelines you can sort of fuck time up in a poem mm-hmm. yeah I think that at the moment especially what I'm most interested in is the way that poetry allows you to collapse time mm-hmm. so That's that true. I can be talking about someone from 2001 at the same time as I'm talking about myself at the same time as I'm talking about someone in the 60s I think that poetry allows a greater degree of movement than I've been able to find in many other different art forms. Mm. Um, Louise, can you love that? (laughs) Introduce your next song, please. Um, Yes, this is by Anoni, and I love this new song. It came out, I think, just only a couple of weeks ago. Um not from when this radio show comes out but I was completely moved by it I suppose, just the idea of change I think is really moving because it is all we've got sometimes, so even when things are really hideous that's the only thing that I'm like, well it's gonna change thank god <laughs> but I think of course uh, in in, the... Meanwhile I'm crying <laughs> <laughs> In the way that they've documented it in this song um, and they had Monroe Bergdorf in the video it just feels very like of a moment, you can really pulsate that moment I love it. And Mary Bogdoff looks amazing in that video as well. Sensational, always. (laughs) 
Welcome back. Um, so, Tom, you've selected a text for us. What have you got for us? I've got, I've got a very sad passage from the autobiography of Margaret Oliphant, who was a 19th century novelist who wrote between the late 1840s and the 1890s, was an incredibly prolific and, uh, I think, a wonderful novelist. But she wrote this autobiography at the end of her life, um, which begins... She didn't really design it as an autobiography. It's, it's pretty much an, a sort of collection of outpourings at different points in her life. And the, the book begins, as it was finally published after her death, with this sort of just completely raw uh, emotional outpouring on the, uh, shortly after the, uh, the death of her 10-year-old daughter, Maggie, in uh, in Rome in 1864, um, and it's uh, it's a very beautiful passage. I'm just going to try and, and cut and snip some bits together and just end with the bit I find most moving. But I will um, I will start here. So this is Mrs. Oliphant, as she she was known, um, writing in 1864. I think shortly after they buried her ten-year-old daughter. I feared from the first moment her illness began, and yet I had a kind of underlying conviction that God would not take my ewe lamb, my woman child, from me. I have not been resigned. I cannot feel resigned. My heart is sore as if it was an injury. God forgive me, but I feel myself calling her my ewe lamb as if it was to reproach him who has taken her from me and has not spared. Oh, my darling, my Maggie. I feel as if I could go down on my knees and pray for her, not to forget her poor mother. Where are you? Oh, my child, my child. I have tried to follow her in imagination, to think of her delight and surprise when from the fever, wandering and languor of her bed, she came suddenly into the company of angels and the presence of the Lord. But then the child was but a child, and death is but a natural event. It changed her surroundings, her capabilities, but it could not change the little living soul. Did she not stop short there and say, Where is Mamma? Did not the separation overwhelm her? This thought of very desolation. Did she not think of the sad horror, the heart that was breaking for her? God knows. All this is fanciful, perhaps wrong, but I cannot help it. Oh my God! Called <laughs> blimey! Yeah. I just find the idea because it's such an unusual and not a very religious idea. I think that she imagines this child getting into heaven and then saying, "Where, where am I? Mm. Where is, where is my mama?" I just find that's. I can just imagine how that how that thought must have tortured her. Um, so, I, and that's the beginning of the autobiography, and it's a very um, wow. Because it wasn't designed as a book, you are just plunged into this outpouring um, and it's uh, it's a great book, she's a great writer mm, Thank you, beautifully read as well, um, can you introduce your Texas song for us? Mm. It's a strange, <laughs> maybe it works No actually it, it almost, it actually works because it, this is about a song that makes me think of my of my mum especially, and, but my parents generally, you know my parents were big into Texas in the 90s, as we all were, and as I am still now, today. <laughs> and uh, so they divorced, and and so this is one of the songs that makes me think about them together, and my mum actually could never listen to Texas in the, in the years after they got divorced because it made her think of my dad. So this is a bit of a, of a mother-son song, mm. Texas. 
Okay. Um, I think uh, we didn't hear Boyega's big art or um, <laughs> film or whatever moment. So cool. What I'd say is that, like, nowadays, I find myself welling up most often in films when there is a scene of, like, protest or, like, community. And I think that comes from the one film that I can remember myself crying to, which was Pokemon 2000. And <laughs> Charizard has his neck stuck in a gigantic pipe and all of the other Pokemons and Ash are just standing around him because no one knows how to get him out. And then they all start crying and through the collective power of their tears, Charizard gets the strength to pull his neck out of the pipe. And that's, to my knowledge, the last time I cried watching a film. <laughs> <laughs> that was so beautiful. <laughs> Um, I felt the emotion. Yeah. Um, the most moving part of the show so far for me. Agreed. Yeah. Is there a reference to that in your? You've got, you've got an upcoming collection um, that's not been announced yet, but mm. you've been working on. Indeed, there's no Charizard in that collection. It's been an emotional collection to write. It's called Adam, and is about a Nigerian boy who, in 2001, was trafficked from Benin City to London where he was murdered, dismembered and thrown into the Thames and because the police weren't able to identify his body they named him Adam so that he could be humanised in the press was the reason that they gave and my collection imagines this Nigerian boy Adam to have been Adam from the Bible. Mm. And uh, are the, all of the poems sort of dealing, is it, is it narrative-based? Is it sort of an exploration of a life before that? Or is, it, sort of, is the time more collapsed? I try to stir away from the narrative-based. There are, of course, details from his life and his death. But for me, it is more of an attempt at world-building, imagining what world would come from this boy being both the Adam that he was and the Adam that I'm imagining him to be. And so in that world building is the collapse of time, the fact that this could be 4,000 years ago, this could be 20 years ago, this could be today, this could be London, this could be Benin City and... Yeah, trying to do that by speaking to this boy that I never knew, um, but also speaking to this world and these people after whom... This world and these people who come after this boy. How did you come, how, how did you come to the subject? Quite randomly, I believe, in that it was just a link to a page that I saw on Wikipedia um, where it was Adam and then in brackets murder victim and then reading more about it I realised the emotional and personal touchstones to my own life and that was particularly 
heightened when I realised that in 2001, he would have been, when he died, between the ages of four and seven, meaning that he was roughly my age. Mm. And so in collapsing time, in imagining a world in which he is allowed to be for longer, I thought of who he might be today to me. Mm. Would he be my cousin? Would he be my favourite rapper? Would he be someone who I walk past on the street, etc.? Um, could you uh, introduce your next song for us? Yes. So this next song is called Tuesday is Friday and it's by a band called Wild Cookie. And I love it because it speaks so much to my outlook on life, which is to, which is to live as opposed to simply being alive. I think that there's a distinction in like the passive and active ways of framing that and to relate it a little bit to the collection that I've just been speaking about I think that in it I don't necessarily want to write something that is wholly traumatic I think that from this boy's death I'm trying to imbue into that world into that story life and I think that this song by arguing that if you want it to be Tuesday can be Friday does that Um, we're coming to your selected text. What have you chosen? Um, I've chosen a poem called Sheltered Garden by HD, um, which is somebody that I've just learned about pretty recently um, through their partner, who's a person called Briar. Um, and it was a woman and she changed her name to Briar because she didn't want a female name. Mm. And I guess we know now much more discourse around what that is, I suppose, around rejecting gender. But this was, again, at the turn of the century. There's a lot of that. Yeah, really interesting. <laughs> I didn't expect so much time. To... <laughs> um, and she named herself Briar because it's an island off of um, the UK and she mm. wanted to be named after the land rather than, yeah sort of very gendered female name. Mm. Anyway, HD was her partner that she loved and cared for, so um, this piece is about the water. Um, so I'll read it for you now and try not to fidget. <laughs> um, I have had enough. I gasp for breath. Every way ends, every road, every footpath leads at last to the hill crest. Then you retrace your steps or to find the same slope on the other side. Mm precipitate. I have had enough. Borders pinks, cloves pinks, wax lilies, herbs, sweet cress. Oh, for some sharp swish of a branch, there's no scent of resin in this place. No taste of bark, of coarse weeds, aromatic, astringent, only border on border of scented pinks. Have you seen fruit under cover when wanted light? Pears wad wadded in cloth? 
protected from the frost, melons almost ripe, smothered in straw. Why not let the players cling to an empty branch? All your coaxing will only make a bitter fruit. Let them cling, ripen of themselves, test their own worth, nipped, shriveled by the frost, to fall at last but fair with a russet coat. Or the melon, let it bleach yellow in the winter light, even tart to the taste. It is better to taste of frost, the exquisite frost, than of wadding and of dead grass. For this beauty, with beauty without strength, chokes out life. I want wind to break. Scatter these pink stalks, snap off their spiced heads, fling them about with dead leaves, spread the wings with spread the paths with twigs, limbs broken off, trail great pine branches hurled from some far wood right across the melon patch, break pear and quince, leave half trees torn, twisted, but showing the fight was valiant. Oh, to blot out this garden, to forget, to find a new beauty in some terrible, wind-tortured place. Really gorgeously read. Um, I love it in a poem when I um, when I'm hearing a, a poem read and I hear a word anew, um, which was nipped. The way he said, <laughs> I, I felt nipped. <laughs> I don't know, like nipped in or, not. <laughs> but um, it, it came across really beautifully. It's a great poem. Thank you so much. <laughs> um, so we've got your next song, um, which is the pop group one. Oh yeah. Um... I love this band. I used to listen to this a lot. Again, it's a sort of um, nostalgic song, but it's about a girl who is um, good and evil, and I just love that idea of a woman being good and evil because I believe that to be very true. (laughs) (laughs) And I think thinking about those dichotomies and how we all need to exist within all of that is so important. But, yeah, they say it in a much more post-punk way. Such a good song. <laughs> We're all, there was a bit it. of uh, dancing happening in the studio. Um, cool. I want to talk, uh, Tom, to you about, um, if I can, if you'll let me, about uh, sex in your book. Oh, yes. Um, because those were the sections... You said very primly. Oh, yes. yes. <laughs> um, there is a lot of it. Um, and I don't know, actually, what constitutes as a lot of sex in a novel. There was, there was sex in the novel. Um, and those were the moments that I found most moving. I was, you know... Um, I think nearly moved to tears, which I, I, you know, I don't cry at. Sure, and it's an interesting feeling to be moved by, um, by sex in a, in a by a sex scene. Was that were you aware of that when you were writing? No, I mean that's such a lovely thing to hear. I, no one said that to me before, so thank you. Um, moving, I, I don't think I was aiming to move or, or what I was trying to do. I certainly wasn't trying to sort of titillate i was i hope and maybe you'll, you'll tell me that the, the scenes are moving partly because certainly the, the scenes involving 
John, who's this sort of man who's been in the closet for 30 years, most of his life, and has fallen in love with someone in 1894, that the scenes he... The sex scenes he has with, with Frank are a kind of outpouring of 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 sexuality, of this repressed and suppressed longing and feeling, and that there is something um, touching it in that, as well as as well as sexy. I hope. I hope it's not all you know weeping. Um, so yeah, but they're, they're, I, otherwise, I think you've got to try and write a sex scene the way you write anything else, just with precision and and. and purpose and and control and discipline and um people often say how you know do you do something different but you to do it right you've got to it's like all good writing hopefully it's it's good because it's good because mm. it's good um but it felt important to have the sex for those emotional reasons it was um it needed to have john's journey needed to have a sexual dimension otherwise it would be this purely arid intellectual one or um yeah, so I'm, I'm glad you. Th- mm. I'm glad you think that. But there's, um, I think because I've I've noticed that your novel is often described as embodied, embodied historical fiction, which I think is maybe a, a sort of nod towards that slightly. But the the sort of tenderness, um, and the impossibility that when he's looking, I think, um, at Frank for the first time naked, and it's almost too much, mm-hmm. and you feel that, and it's like, um. I, I guess also because, as you said, because of the context, it, it yeah, it, yeah. it is in, intensely um, sort of vulnerable and, and beautiful. Yeah, well, thank you. I mean, the whole book is about sexual feeling and what it what that is. I mean, it's not all about having sex. It's just inhabiting a body that, that yearns and, and wants and what it means to deny that or not let it out and what it happens when you do let it out and the various <laughs> ways that can go. So, you know, there's also a failed sex scene, a, you know, a really disastrous sex mm. scene in the book and um, heterosexual and and gay scenes and it's... It, it, it just... Again, it's about the past. I mean, it's important. People say embodied historical fiction, like that's some kind of oxymoron or something novel, but it shouldn't... It shouldn't be because, of course, these people had bodies. Of course, they sweated and had erections and, and, and everything else. And it shouldn't be a surprise to us. And it's actually probably reveals something telling about our psyche that we can't get these people out of the black and white photographs mm. and out of their sort of stiff collars and see so them <laughs> and see them and see them for for what they what they were, which is us, one hundred and twenty years ago. Um, so. I didn't think about it at the time, but it, it, it just felt necessary that this was a book about people inside bodies, one way or another, their own or someone else's. Mm. I chose a scissor song for the beginning to open the show because she says, um, there's a line, uh, is it warm enough in here for you inside me? Mm. And I think that's such a beautiful, like sort of about uh, longing and gender and, and sex and sort of, yeah, how sex can feel lonely, mm. Um, mm. but also, yeah, tender. Um, we have to talk about Prince. Okay, sure. <laughs> um, so you chose Purple Rain, but Purple Rain was chosen by Sheena Patel um, last episode. Um, can you talk about the why and also the Prince song that you have chosen now? Well, I mean, Prince has just been a huge presence in my life. I, my dad got me Prince's greatest hits for my 10th birthday. And so I, and I've been obsessed with Prince ever since. And I now have a huge poster of Prince. Uh, in one of the rooms in my house and it makes me happy every day because I think 10-year-old Tom would have absolutely loved this. Um, 
Purple Rain is just such a classic, isn't it? It's just a banger, and it's got so much space in the song. It's just it just gives you time to kind of swell with the song, and it makes me think of some of those profound early listening experiences. There was a point when I just, in fact, getting into music and getting into Prince just go hand in hand for me, and so I associate Prince with listening to music alone for the very first time in my life and really being interested in it. And the song we're playing instead of Purple Rain is The Beautiful Ones, which is from Purple Rain, the album <laughs> and the film, and is similarly um, sort of operatic. And the thing I find moving about it is I've always loved Prince's ability to to scream in multiple ways. And he's, it's a fundamentally dramatic way of singing and... It's a really wonderful way, a kind of primal way of inhabiting the emotion of a song, expressing the emotion of a song. And so I I love his screams. And this one's <laughs> this song's got some good screams. So listen up. <laughs> Beautiful. That was uh, Prince from Tom there. Um, so we're nearly finished, um, but I uh, don't want to leave without asking you all any embarrassing moments that you've, or embarrassing things that you've been embarrassed to be moved by. Um, Louise, what's yours? Um, in the same vein as Tom's um, crying at um, Gogglebox, um, I find myself now watching MasterChef, the final. <laughs> <laughs> Alone and bad because I've got a TV in my bedroom, just crying. So that's great, isn't it? Just at any dish, <laughs> just or? achievement. I think <laughs> you can just tell that the achievement is like. And also, I can't cook, so I just deem it to be quite an achievement. <laughs> <laughs> I love. It. I mean, I love MasterChef. Is it is it MasterChef the original? MasterChef the professionals? Yeah, MasterChef. Just the the home cooks, the ones that are not mm. really cooks, and then by the end of it, they're like, I want to open, you know, ten restaurants. They, they just go from zero to a hundred. <laughs> Nice. And I love I love seeing that. I love witnessing that. And crying. <laughs> I love it. Um, I love having witnessed your growth. <laughs> um, Boyega, what's yours? So cool. If I'm to think about why I would be embarrassed by something that moves me, then I think the answer would have to be Arsenal Football Club. And I would say embarrassed because most of my friends don't care about football mm. so if something particularly bad happens with Arsenal there's a sense of embarrassment being upset around them and the reason for that upset being a group of men whose lives have nothing to do with me mm. I think that's uh, yeah I think that the lots of people would say Football is, I mean, lots of people cry at football, right? Um, I don't respect you. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Uh, Tom. <laughs> um, I, well, I have got one I was going to say, and maybe I'll say that as well if you allow me to, but you did. Um, Louise just reminded me of that incredible X Factor final. Beyonce, Alexandra Burke. Oh Does God. everyone remember it? Yes. Yeah. Wow. 
That makes me cry every time. Just in case um, someone, uh, you know, in case you were living under a rock and you didn't see that, um, what what happened, Tom? Uh, am I going to get it the right way around? I think Alexandra Burke is comes out singing. Mm. It's the X Factor final. She's singing a big number, and then there's just a moment where you know there's a, there's a breakdown or something, and she says, "Ladies and gentlemen, my hero." Beyonce and Beyonce comes out onto the stage singing and it's so incredible and Alexandra, Alexandra Burke just breaks down and she can't eat she can barely lift her head with the weight of her tears and emotion and it's so hard it's just irresistible I will always cry at that my mum used to I sometimes used to walk into a room and my mum had it recorded on the tv and she would just be watching it again no. for like years afterwards she just loved it so that's a great moment always makes me cry also, I love the ending of Mrs. Doubtfire. Possibly my favourite ever film. And there goes my respect for you, Tom. <laughs> there goes my respect for you, Ella. Because uh, that is one of the greatest films of all time. And the end, it really is. Don't look at me like that. It is. And the ending with the lovely speech about... Um, all right, puppets. Goodbye now. Um, sometimes mummies and daddies don't get back together. Sometimes they do. But those are the ties. But families always stay together. And those are the ties that bind. All right, puppets. Bye for now. I've actually never done that before, ever. But that, really? just, that actually sounded really quite good. I'll let you listen back in there. It was good. It was good. Um, and so uh, this will go out in a month. Um, so what have you got, guys got coming up in August? What should they look out for? Hmm. Someone else talk while I look at my diary. The future. Tom <laughs> likes the past, but can't can't see what, into the future. What, like professionally? Professionally, or if you've, why have you got like a big birthday? Or No, I'm just going to be living life. Living just life. enjoying the sun, etc. Nice. Mm. Living life, not just being alive. Indeed. Um, Louise? Same. I think I'm just going to hopefully be working and swimming. That's just all that's on my agenda for August. Where are you swimming? I live by the sea um, next to Hastings. So mm. as long as it's clean, I'll be swimming. Mm. That. <laughs> Thanks, government. <laughs> <laughs> um, cool. Okay. Uh, so uh, Hello. Oh, sorry. <laughs> when I looked at you, you looked blank. Well, that's because I was looking at my diary. Sorry, pop it. <laughs> <laughs> I, looking at my diary, I can see that I am speaking at the Edinburgh Festival Yay. on the 19th of August about my book. So Edinburgh Book Fest, yeah? Yeah, Edinburgh Book Festival. So would love to see any friends see of Soho that. Radio. I will see Ella. Maybe I won't after with, this downfire uh, fallout. <laughs> I'll, I'll be there um, heckling at your <laughs> event. I'm doing a thing with Aidan Moffat from Arab Strap. Oh. Um, I, I know. Great. <laughs> um, Stress Test, which is the other Soho radio um, show that I host with uh, Martha Sprackland, Joe Dunthorne and John Osborne. So we'll be there in at Edinburgh Book Fest. Um, hopefully not clashing with your event and hopefully we can have a drink. Yeah. And maybe Boyega and Louise can uh, join us. Yeah. Get ourselves to Scotland. Mm, yeah. Get, a bunch get of the poppets. playlist on. <laughs> All poppets together. <laughs> How do you feel about that accent? <laughs> I'm into it. It's meant to be a bad... It's Robin Williams' bad Scottish accent. Um, yeah. Good. Um, so good uh, thank you to Louise Gray, to Tom Crew, and to Boyega Odebanjo. And Louise, we've got one more song from you to play us out. What is it? 
It is Eau de Bedroom Dancing by La Tigre, who I just saw recently because they went on tour after 18 years. And when you're in a room with all the people that have been dancing to this literally in their bedrooms, but doing it in the Troxy, that was when I was crying and dancing. It was amazing. Bye. I've been Ella Frears. This is Tears for Frears. Ciao. Thank you so much. <laughs> Thank you.